Good morning. This morning's reading comes from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Junah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountains of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come to say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Robin, for reading. Uh, Pray with me, if you would, as we dig into the scriptures. O Lord, you are our light. So let us walk in the light of the Lord. Would you illumine our hearts and our minds, help us to see and perceive what it is that you would say to us, and give us ears that listen well and attentively, that listen for your spirit and not just for what we want to hear. Lord, give us hands that are eager to do the work that you have called us to do, that we would participate with you as you make all things new. We ask these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I mentioned a little bit earlier, this is the first uh, day in the season called Advent, and Advent is not Christmas. Uh, I'm going to harp on this a little bit this month uh, for a very important reason. It's it's easy to get sucked into Christmas. Advent Advent comes from a Latin word that means to arrive, and so what we're we're waiting for is for someone to arrive, namely Jesus. Now, we know we're going to celebrate his arrival uh, on Christmas Day. But it's important to wait, and it's hard not to get sucked into Christmas. I mean, Lowe's, uh, Lowe's Home Improvement, they started putting up Christmas decorations in August. Like, the radio station started playing Christmas music well before Thanksgiving, and it really shouldn't start any time before Thanksgiving. We all know that. Like, all we think about around this time is Christmas. But it's really important to wait. And so we're slowing down this Advent season when we're thinking about what does it mean to wait and why is it helpful to wait? Now, we're not try- I'm not trying to be a Grinch here and saying, don't celebrate Christmas. Like, celebrate, okay? We're going to sing Christmas songs and happy songs too, especially as we go throughout the, the Advent season. But there's important, it's important to learn to wait. And we all know this at some level. Like, this is why if, if you have kids, this is why you make your kids wait until Christmas to open their presents. Some of you may have already started getting presents for your kids. Well, why not just let them open them now? Because there's something in us that says it's important for them to learn to wait. There's value, and sometimes when we wait, the gratification is greater. It's the difference between throwing a hot pocket in the microwave or or, or, or kind of laboring over a perfectly slow-cooked pot roast. Like, yes, you can get the quick meal in 45 seconds, but does a hot pocket really compare to a pot roast? I hope you would all say no. No, not even close. When you wait for something, the payoff is greater. 
Now, it's easy to talk about waiting when, when we're talking about you know, silly examples like Hot Pockets. When we think about waiting more seriously, it gets harder. And this is why we really need to slow down and think carefully about the value of waiting. Because waiting uh, often means suffering. It means we're waiting for something to be made right that isn't right. So we don't just wait on our food to be ready when it comes supper time, but some of us are waiting for some very difficult things. We, we talked a lot about waiting and suffering this fall as we looked at the first part of the New Testament book of James. Um, some of us are waiting for, for relationships to be reconciled. And you have relationships, and we have relationships that are broken, and we long for them to be made right. And they're not. And we wonder, like, when, when will this be, will it even be made right? Some of us are waiting for an illness to heal. Maybe it's your illness or somebody you know and love. And, and you're like, when, when will this heal? Will it heal? I'm not even sure whether this will. What happens if I don't overcome this illness? What happens if my loved one doesn't overcome their battle with cancer? In the past two, near, two years, we have waited <laughs> on this pandemic to end and on this virus to go away. And it hasn't. It hasn't. And we're feeling the effects of that even in our church family as as people are coming down with COVID even now. And and we're hearing experts say, this could be with us for the rest of our lives. This could be a permanent reality. You see, there there are some really deep questions that we wrestle with in our lives, and we have to learn to wait and to sit in those questions. How do we learn to wait when it's not just a matter of convenience, but it's a really deep, meaningful question in our life. Advent gives us a way forward in the darkness and in the waiting. For today, I would offer this, that we need hope. Hope is what will allow us to wait faithfully without crumbling under the pressure or without becoming cynical. One of my, um, probably one of my favorite theologians, Living theologians, I know you probably all have favorite living theologians. I do. Uh, his name is Miroslav Volf. He's Croatian. He's a professor at Yale. Uh, a year and a half ago or so, right as the pandemic was starting, he began to talk about the value of uh, waiting and of suffering well. And he was, he was thinking specifically about the phrase that we see over and over in the Bible, do not fear. And he started reflecting on the nature of fear. Here's what he points out, that in the modern Western world, we use technology to eliminate fear from our lives. But listen to how, here's a, um, a quote from a podcast that he gave. He says, the, the primary way that we have come to deal with the problem of fear in modernity is by seeking to eliminate dangers, the external sources of fear. By contrast, In most of human history, the main way people dealt with danger and with fear was by cultivating courage to face fears that could not be eliminated. That's largely because in ancient societies, people didn't have the knowledge or the know-how or even the wealth to eliminate dangers from their lives. They felt impotent with respect to many dangers like pandemics. Today, on the other hand, technological developments have made it possible to eliminate or to diminish many dangers. You see what he's doing? So he's basically saying that now we have the resources to get rid of the dangers that used to, we used to have no control over. Here's what he points out. I love this. He says, paradoxically, 
The expectation of creating a fully safe environment makes us more fearful because it focuses our hopes on eliminating danger so much that we tend to forget about the importance of conquering fear. The truth is, danger cannot be eliminated from human life, and we cannot get rid of fear in human life by eliminating its sources. That's a long quote, I know. (laughs) I hope you got the sense of what he's saying, that throughout history and in many parts of the world, especially less developed parts of the world, people had and have much less control over external threats. Think about it. Famine, uh, burglary, illness, fire, like all of these things. And, and we've developed mechanisms to deal with those dangers and those threats. So we have a supply chain so that if there's a famine in one part of the world, then we can get food from another part of the world. And, and things just, right? We have alarm systems that keep burglars out or that let us know if a burglar is in. We have modern medicine so we don't have to deal with injury and illness in the same way. We have building codes and sprinkler systems that protect us from fire. Those are all good things. We're not saying those are bad things, but they've come with a cost. You see, by eliminating fear from our lives, we have made ourselves less courageous. We're less able to deal with fear when it inevitably confronts us. So when something like a global pandemic occurs, you see, our, our, in the modern Western world, like we're the least equipped to deal with this. Because we don't know how to confront that. It's almost as though we've eliminated so much fear from our lives that our courage muscles have atrophied. And now they can't bear the weight of these things that are still out of our control. Have you seen that? In yourself, maybe? Maybe in others? You've seen people who just have have crumbled? We need hope. We need hope. We need something to build that courage muscle back. And, and I don't mean just, just like hallmark hope, you know, a nice little card that says hope and it has something vaguely comforting written on it as though that's really going to help. Because life is a lot harder to deal with than something that you, you can't just give some vaguely inspirational quote and then problem solved. That's not how it works. We need hope. This Advent season, we're dealing, we're going we're gonna to look at, there, so in, in Advent traditionally there are four themes that we focus on. In, in order, hope, peace, joy, and love. We're, we're going to be very kind of traditional this year and examine each of those themes, hope, peace, joy, and love, and to see how those help us address our world today. When everything, when the whole world is coming at you, where do you find hope and how does that help you deal with it? Isaiah wrote to God's people at a time when everything was crumbling. <laughs> Everything was crumbling. This is, this is Israel. This is about 25, 2700 years ago. They saw moral decay. Their leaders had little to no integrity. Civilization was getting worse and worse. They were facing significant threats from other foreign superpowers. People were forgetting God. None of this sounds familiar, right? Isaiah may have been written almost 3,000 years ago. It's very relevant to us today. And in this setting... In the setting of that world, which really is our world because things don't change, Isaiah writes five verses at the beginning of chapter two, at the very beginning of his book, in which he paints a picture of hope. He says, everything is sliding backwards. 
but it will get better. And here's how you can, here's how you can withstand that storm. Isaiah's going to offer two course corrections to us today. He does a lot more in these verses, but we're just going to focus on two. Two little course corrections. He points out that we tend to look for hope in the wrong time, and we tend to look for hope in the wrong place. And so he's going to correct that, and he's going to say, instead of looking for hope in the wrong time, look for it in the right time, in the wrong place, look in the right. It's almost like um, you get off course, and the GPS, you know, recalculates, and it gets you back on course. Isaiah is saying, we've gotten off course, but here's how we get back on course. He says, don't hope in the present, but hope in the future. That's the first course correction. And the second is this, don't hope in circumstances, hope in a person. We don't hope in the present, but in the future. And we don't hope in circumstances, but in a person. Let's start with the first, not in the present, but in the future. Did you notice? I don't know if you noticed, and if you have your program with you or if you have your Bible open, um, you can look at the verses. Basically, the whole thing is written in the future tense. All of Isaiah is written as prophecy. Part of it is kind of like prediction, but it's important to note he's not writing present tense. He's not just trying to be optimistic as though, you know how sometimes things just go really bad and, and people say, like one of the worst things that you can possibly say to someone who's suffering, which is, hey, look at the bright side. At least dot, dot, dot. By the way, if somebody you know is suffering, never say, look on the bright side. Never start a sentence with, well, at least, or it could be worse. He doesn't do that. To an ancient Jew, it would have been foolish to say, hey, it's not that bad, because it was that bad. If you know your Jewish history, um, Isaiah's writing at a time right before the Babylonians are about to trample the Jews and about to haul them off into exile and into slavery. I don't know if any of you have, have been watching. There's this really wonderful um, TV show called The Chosen. Uh, it basically tells the life of Jesus through the eyes of his followers and his disciples. Uh, and there's a line, I'm paraphrasing, but there's a line in one of them, one of the characters, they're all Jewish because they're followers of Jesus, says, we're Jews. Suffering is just what we do. <laughs> like, the Jews understood this historically. And it would have been incredibly hollow for Isaiah to say, you know what, just look on the bright side. It's not that bad. That doesn't work. As their nation is crumbling, and as they are watching the Babylonian, or at this time it's actually the Assyrians, bear down on them and get ready to, to squash them, Politically, Isaiah paints a picture of a kingdom, but a kingdom that cannot crumble. Here's what he says. He says, the mountain of the Lord's temple will, will be, this is future tense, will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Now, in ancient cultures, uh, they were very religious. Most ancient cultures had a, a kind of religion and they almost all worshipped on mountaintops. It makes sense, especially um, when their knowledge of, of kind of science and astronomy was less. What is a mountain? That's the highest you can get. Mountains are where heaven meets earth, so to speak. We even see this in the Old Testament. A lot of times God meets people on mountains. Think Mount Sinai with Moses in the Exodus, or think the mountain uh, where Elijah meets God in the still small voice in 1 Kings 19. The mountains are where heaven meets earth, and so that's where you meet God, so to speak. But notice this, 
But Isaiah promises that the mountain of the Lord's temple will be raised above the hills. In other words, God's temple is higher than all the others. As if to say, his is greater than all the others. And it says all the other nations will stream to his temple. It's a vivid image. It's an image of a stream actually running uphill. That's, you ever seen a stream up, run uphill? Of course not. But he says this stream of people will run uphill towards the Lord's temple. In other words, it, as the Jews are being hauled off against their will into slavery and captivity, Isaiah paints a, promise, a picture of a promise that says there's coming a time when not just you, but all the nations, including the ones who are carrying you off against your will, will willingly and voluntarily and eagerly stream back up to the mountain of the Lord to worship him. Maybe most meaningfully for a culture facing the threat of wicked armies, a culture that, I mean, if a superpower is coming at you with their army, you need some hope. He says this, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes. And this is a very famous verse. You've probably heard this before. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up, against, take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. I just heard of a, um, a little like Christian, it's kind of a Christian co-op right outside Philadelphia. And I don't know how they, how they get these things, but they find assault weapons, like they buy assault weapons and somehow they smelt them down and make garden, garden equipment out of them. And it's totally impractical and it's not cost effective, but they're, it's, it's, they're making a very important symbolic point, which is they're saying we're taking these implements, these weapons of war, and we're turning them into agricultural tools. They're getting it right from Isaiah 2 here. That there will be a wholesale cultural shift. A wholesale cultural shift. Isaiah is saying there is coming a day and there is coming a time when the armies are bearing down on you. Look forward to a time when there won't be the means of war, so there'll be no more weapons. In other words, they're turning the swords into plowshares. There actually won't be war at all. He says nations won't take up sword, a sword against one another. There won't even be a mentality of war. This is maybe the most interesting to me. He says they'll train for war no more. Or there's that old gospel song, you know, study war no more. Imagine if our nation dissolved its military. Just, it'd be foolish, right? Like, given the world we live in, and, and even if we live in peace, there's a theory, and it's probably politically, I'm not a political theorist, but I imagine it's a pretty good theory, that one of the ways you preserve peace is by having a well-stocked army. It makes other people afraid to attack you. Imagine if we said, you know, we're not even going to train for or prepare for the eventuality, the what-if of war. We're that committed to peace. It's that far from our minds. I imagine that that's so foreign that many of us have a hard time wrapping our minds around that. And yet that's the reality that Isaiah paints. He says there is coming a time when this will be the reality, when the what if of evil is non-existent. I don't know if you ever learned about Sparta in your ancient history classes. Go way, way, way back to your middle school history. Remember Sparta? 
Sparta is often a city in ancient Greece. It's almost always painted in contrast to Athens. So Athens is political might and Sparta is military might. And even from the time they were, they were young, young, young boys, the Spartans trained their children to be soldiers and to be warriors. There were weapons everywhere. There was, it was a very brutal culture. Isaiah paints a picture of going from Sparta, where there's a culture of just war and battle and opposition and violence going from Sparta to somewhere like Iowa. Amen. <laughs> you ever notice, I mean, this, this is a little tongue-in-cheek, but I've, I really think there's something to it. You ever notice how Midwesterners are some of the nicest people you'll meet? I'm not just pandering to Doran here. <laughs> like, can you, can you name a Midwesterner who's not nice? It's just part of... I don't know what's in the water. I don't know what's in their blood. But there's something about what's going on there. The Midwest is agricultural. It's a place of peace. There's something about agriculture and peace that go hand in hand. Farmers don't go to war. They just tend their crops, get up, go to bed, do the work day in and day out. Part of it is maybe they don't have time. (laughs) They're so busy farming. Life is peaceful. Life is agricultural. In fact, a number of commentators point out the fact that when Isaiah is talking about turning weapons into farming tools, he's making a reference to agriculture, obviously, which is a reference back to the Garden of Eden. He's saying all the brokenness of creation will be restored to how it should have been in the first place. He's painting this beautiful picture of what it will be like. Now, you might be thinking, it's not like that right now. And you'd be exactly right. An ancient Israelite would have said the exact same thing. It's not like that right now. How does that do us any good? We all know that sometimes when you look to something in the future, it changes how you live now, right? When you look to something in the future, it changes how you walk. When you have an assurance of something in the future, it gives you peace and hope and steadfastness right now. You ever had something like that happen? That even when the whole world seemed to be coming against you, when you knew that there was something coming down the line, you didn't have to worry so much, and it changes your whole demeanor, even in the middle of the suffering right now, which is why we have to look to the future. You see, if you only look to the the present, to what's going on right now, and you try to be hopeful or optimistic, probably one of two things will happen. Either you'll be a hollow optimist, so you'll be the, the, you know, the ostrich who buries his head in the sand and just says, ah, oh, life is fine, even when it's clearly not. That's called denial. Or you'll be an annoying cynic. You'll just be, you know, the person who always, they're just, they always see the downside of things because they're always just looking around themselves to where they are right now. And they'll often say something like, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. No, you're a pessimist. <laughs> we know that. Our hope is not in what is now, but in what is to come. Now, a careful careful thinker might respond something like this, and you may be thinking this. So if we have no control over our circumstances, and we really don't, then isn't hoping in future circumstances just as shaky as hoping in present circumstances? What's the difference? If we can't control present circumstances, what's to make us think we can control future circumstances? We don't hope in future circumstances. We hope in a future promise. And it takes a person to make a promise. 
That gets, to, that gets us to the second course correction that Isaiah gives us. He says, number one, don't, don't hope in what is present. Hope in, hope in what is. Hope in what is to come. Number two, don't hope in circumstances, but hope in a person. You see, usually when we talk about hope, when we use it in our day-to-day language, we're, we're talking about it in very circumstantial terms. I hope I hit all the green lights on my way to work today because I'm running late. That's a circumstance. You can't control whether the lights are green or not. I hope I get a raise next year. You can't control that. I hope the, the Patriots make the playoffs again. You can't control, you see? I hope my kids turn out okay. You really can't control that either. As much as we like to think we can, and, and sometimes maybe some of you have noticed this, like the more you try to control someone, the more they start to rebel and, and get out of control. See, all of those sources of hope that we commonly look to are, are purely circumstantial. And if it doesn't go well, then our lives are ruined. I'm mean, a silly example, but I, I noticed last year, <laughs> um, I love, uh, I went to a small college in North Carolina called Davidson College. I love to follow our basketball team. I, I catch almost every single game uh, on TV. We had a so-so season last year. And I started to notice that when, when Davidson lost a basketball game, the next day I was in a bad mood. Who cares? It really doesn't matter. But somehow, by placing a, a measure of hope in a present circumstance, it was affecting me, and I was realizing that this can't last. I can't hold on to this. When we hope in our circumstances, that's a shaky hope at best. The odds of you hitting every green light, or the Patriots making the playoffs, they're completely out of your control. So hoping in future circumstances, hoping that things will magically get better doesn't work either. Because what if it doesn't? You know, sometimes people will say something like, uh, things will work out in the end. Like a, a really good question is, how do you know? How do you know that things will work out in the end? If it's just based on circumstantially things magically resolving, we don't know that they will, and historically, one could make a pretty good case that they haven't. Not so far. I'm not one of the people who believes that the world is any better or worse now than it, than it has been in the past, but certainly we would argue there's a lot to be anxious about in our world today. If somebody 50 years ago had said, look at the progress and the rate of technology and how it's advancing, things have got to get better. Have they? If they haven't gotten better over the past 50 years, what's to make us think they'll get better over the next? You see, if you put your hope in circumstances, whether present or future, there's no guarantee that it'll work. And experience is teaching us, because experience is a good teacher, that that it's not going to get better. Ancient Jews knew this, by the way. When Isaiah is writing to the ancient Jews, they knew that they they probably, who knows if we'll someday just magically get dealt a better hand. Their civilization is very minor compared to other kingdoms. They never had political power, and when they did, they messed it all up anyway. We need something a lot more solid than a circumstance. We need a person. We We need someone we can hope in. And Isaiah points us not to some vaguely better circumstances, but to God himself. He says, don't hope that things will magically work themselves out. Look to the one who is working things out, 
even as we speak. Look at verses 3 and 4. He, that's God, He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord, which is kind of a personification of God, will go out from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. Our, our true hope is not the vague hope that someday things will magically work themselves out. Isaiah says our hope is that God is working all things out. If you know a person's character, then you're able to hope in them. When you know somebody will come through, who do you know in your life who you can bank on? You can rely on them. They always come through. Think about a name. Think about a face. As reliable as that person is, God is more reliable. As powerful as that person is, God is far more powerful. That person will, whether you like it or not, eventually let you down in one way or another, but God promises that he will never let you down. When you know a person's character, then you know whether or not you can hope in them. Uh, years ago, I think seven or right after, right after we had moved here, uh, Jamie and I met some friends for dinner at a restaurant downtown. Uh, it was one of Jamie's coworkers from a previous job, and uh, so he had, so we're meeting him and his girlfriend for dinner, and he had her number because uh, they were coworkers, didn't have my number, and Jamie had left her phone at home. And um, it's a very 21st century problem, you know. What do I do without my cell phone? How will I survive? And, but we, we, we were sitting in the restaurant, and, and we got there first, and then it was a little after the time we were supposed to meet, and then a little more after, and then a little later, and then we started to worry, like, well, what if? What if? What if? And when you don't have a cell phone, then you're really like, what are we going to do? My life is over. But in that moment, I mean, one, we kind of laughed about what a 21st century problem this was. At some level, I and mean, we didn't talk about it in these terms, but at some level, we had to trust in Josh's character that maybe he got delayed a little bit, but Josh was going to show up for dinner. And you know what? He did, <laughs> of course. And we, and we waited, and it was fine. You see, by, by knowing the person, by knowing his character, by knowing his reliability, we were able to trust in that moment that he would show up for dinner. Our hope and our trust is not in vague circumstances mysteriously working themselves out. It's in God who says he works all things for good for those who trust him and who are called according to his purpose. Here's how we finally know this. From a very Christian perspective, Think about it this way. If our hope were in circumstances, including the circumstances around Jesus, we'd be sunk. Our faith makes no sense if you think about it circumstantially. Because we would be putting our hope in the child of an unwed mother who is a part of a tribe of people who are historically insignificant and have no power and who lived in a barren and powerless backwoods area of the world, in a man who grew to bootstrap a three-year career by teaching us to turn the other cheek and love our enemies, certainly not things that help you get ahead in life, before he was sentenced to a disgraceful death by the Roman army machine, 
a three-year career and then gone. That's not how you build a movement, is it? There is nothing about the circumstances of Jesus Christ that would give us hope. If you think about it just objectively. Not if we trust in circumstances alone, you see? But we don't trust in circumstances alone. We trust in a person, in God Almighty, who became flesh, who came in the most circumstantially improbable way to put the pieces back together of a world that had been shattered. Our hope is not in what happens to us. Friends, don't put your hope in what happens to you. It will not last. Put your hope in the one who does last, who was broken for you, who found victory through defeat, who gives life through his death, who completely changes the course of history by being born in a barn 2,000 years ago, an otherwise unremarkable event. Unremarkable if it weren't God himself doing it. But God put his money where his mouth is. He's done it before. He will continue to do it. That's why the hope of the manger is, is so incredibly robust. Because this isn't just the hope of a little cherub-faced, fat-cheeked baby who looks cute. This is the, host, the, the hope of God himself who did whatever it would take to make our world right again. You see? Back to my favorite theologian, Miroslav Volf. Here's how he finishes a little section. He says, we're not called to disregard or to minimize potential danger. When God says, fear not, he intends for us to see the danger clearly and yet not be overwhelmed by its prospect. The world is hard. The world is broken. The world hurts and is painful. There's that great line, a weary world rejoices in the hymn, O Holy Night, we feel weary. We don't minimize those things. We don't bury our heads in the sand. No, we look to God who did whatever it takes to make things right. That's our hope. We know the one who's making all things new. Will you pray with me? Lord, teach us what it means to hope in you. Teach us what it means to look to you. Would you be in focus, so to speak, sharp, not blurry, in our mind? Help us to remember the many ways throughout Scripture and throughout our experience in our lives that you have been good and faithful, most notably by, by putting skin on, as our friend Will Goff likes to say. As we look to the ways that you have proven reliable, would you use that to build in us the hope that you still are and that you and only you can make all things new? We ask these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.